1: Kiwi making Kiwi better off. It's really hard to get things changed in a democracy. Turns out people don't like giving up things, and they're not very good at understanding the future benefits of things or a long improvement in their circumstances. So, when they're offered some sort of new policy that says they have to give something up, particularly if it's to someone else, or give something up in the hope that things will be better in the future, or more importantly, not worse, it's actually really hard to get that across to voters. And it's really easy if you're an opposition or a political party to present a particular change that, for example, reduces the resources that's going to one particular group that might be quite powerful. It's really easy to whip them up into a frenzy, to galvanize them, to stop this change. So democracies are excellent at preserving the status quo. And that's one of their good things, actually. Uh, Sometimes when you have too much change, you can throw the baby out with the bathwater. And actually, most people don't like enormous amounts of change. That's ultimately why we brought in MMP, because under the first pass of the post system in the mid 80s and early 90s, we had too much change. But now, sometimes the environment, and in this case, the actual environment, means a democracy needs to change fast. So, how do you get democracies to change fast in response to a physical threat? Well, sometimes it's easy to get them to change fast when there's a military threat. If you go back through history, democracies have been quite good at massive changes in tax rates, for example, or huge amounts of public investment in infrastructure, or huge changes in the way that people work or are educated. In the immediate aftermath of the Second World War and during the Second World War, the Western democracies invested hugely in public infrastructure, like motorway networks or technology like rocketry, um, computer systems, all because a government could waive the threat of a communist takeover or a Nazi takeover in the eyes of voters and say, we need to charge you these high taxes and invest in these things to make sure that you don't die and that we survive as a society. So sometimes you need a good crisis in a democracy. You shouldn't waste a good crisis in a democracy. Right now, Aotearoa has a crisis. It's not a good crisis. It's a climate crisis, and it's awful. Of course, we've seen the enormous damage that's been done in Te Tai, Rafiti, in Hawke's Bay, Northland, the enormous amounts of silt that more than a dozen people killed at least, and the immense cost of climate change. And we know, of course, this is not going to go away, these events, which previously were one in 150-year events, seem to be happening a lot more frequently. So we have to think about two things. How do we adapt at the way that we do things so that we're not hurt so badly again? And secondly, how do we reduce our emissions? This is a crisis. And sometimes a crisis can be a convenient time to get some big change through. So in this week's episode of When the Facts Change... I thought it'd be useful to have a thought experiment. Just imagine if there were no financial limits and no political limits to having a true set of climate emergency policies. What could you do? Now, we've all thought about a few things. The trouble is that our political class, those people who come up with policy ideas, have gotten used to, in an MMP era, of only incremental change, of taking very few political risks taking a very low-target approach to trying to get elected and staying in power. So big ideas are things that you should be scared of (laughs) as a politician in New Zealand. And you could argue that Chris Hipkins' elevation to the Prime Minister, who is most interested in bread-and-butter ideas, who's written off the idea of transformational policies, at least before Gabrielle, He reflects something that we've seen a lot in politics in Aotearoa since 1996, which is to take a very incrementalist approach to policy change. The trouble is the planet is warming faster than we can do our politics, so we need to sometimes use the crisis to improve things. So in this week's When the Facts Change, I talk with David Hall, who is the Climate Policy Director at Toha, which looks closely at these issues of how do you come up with a set of policies, which might actually be politically sustainable, that uh, get away from some of the more blunt instruments that we've seen used in the past, like the Emissions Trading Scheme. And we go through the sorts of things you could do, but also the sorts of things that are being done in other places. We're quite isolated here in how we think about climate, in part because both the main political parties have been so risk-averse. But when you look at what's happening in the United States with the Inflation Reduction Act, which we talk about in this week's episode, and the response that we're seeing from the European Union, where both have essentially abandoned a quite conservative fiscal approach to doing climate policy. They're offering really big incentives and subsidies and tax credits so that people make the leap to buy the thing that might be expensive right now, but that is much cheaper to run over the long run. We talk with David about the sorts of policies you could do that aren't necessarily about money, that might be some sort of regulation, and aren't necessarily just about uh, burning less fuel or having a different fuel system that actually involve some of the changes in how we use land, um, the sorts of bio uh, uh, tools that we could use to reduce our emissions and be ready. Because we know that when we look back at the disasters of the last two or three weeks, just imagine if we'd had a decent set of microgrids powered by solar power, those cell sites run by solar power and batteries, the ability to have lots of different parts of the country able to soak that water up rather than have it run off and into someone's backyard and fill up as a layer of silt. That's this week on When the Facts Change. Just imagine if we could do these big policies all at once and not waste a good crisis. I'm Bernard Hickey for When the Facts Change on the Spin Off Podcast Network. Well, kia ora, and welcome to When the Facts Change to David Hall, who is the Climate Policy Director at Toha. Welcome in, David. Kia ora. Firstly, David, can you tell us a bit about what you do and what Toha is and why it's relevant to this climate debate?
0: Yeah, Toha is a indigenous led impact investment marketplace. We're looking to join up uh, demand and supply of environmental improvements um, through creating a, a digital infrastructure which enables those kinds of exchange, especially one which is high trust and high integrity by um issuing different sort of verification products. So you verify that you might have sequestered a tonne of carbon or you might have avoided um, nitrous oxide emissions by reducing fertiliser use or you might have created a new natural habitat or you might have um, undertaken pest and predator control. These are all the sorts of claims that we can use for exchange in the Toha marketplace.
1: So this is the idea that you could solve a problem by having one group of people who who need something, and another group of people who can deliver that thing. Can you give us some sort of examples on the ground or work that you're doing, particularly you know around what's happened in the last couple of weeks, tragically?
0: Yeah, one example is uh, a biodiversity certificate or unit. Um, essentially. Uh, a, a verification that biodiversity improvements have been made. Um, and this addresses a number of different uh, policy objectives. Of course, um, biodiversity improvement and reversing biodiversity loss is a, is a core concern for government. But it also feeds into what we call um, nature-based solutions. And another wonkish term in this space is ecosystem-based adaptation where we're using natural ecosystems like forests, uh, wetlands, estuaries, riparian planting, in order to enhance the resilience of landscapes. And um, currently that's hard to finance. Uh, We have an emissions trading scheme, for instance, which monetizes carbon, but only forests of a certain size. They need to be one hectare or more. And so a lot of the sorts of ecosystems which are really important for adaptation um, don't have a payment mechanism. And so something like a biodiversity uh, credit or a biodiversity unit could help to finance these sorts of landscape interventions.
1: So you're um, someone who's spent much of your working life thinking about climate policy and wondering, I imagine, why on earth humans can't um, understand the science and act together in their own interests in the long run Uh, to um, reduce emissions, adapt for climate change. And you're in a really interesting place because uh, up until Gabrielle, at least, um, you're having to work within a whole bunch of political and financial constraints. So they may well be perceived, but they're certainly there. Uh, No government's going to go out there and suddenly... Promise to spend 100 billion, 200 billion dollars on, you know, subsidies and infrastructure and uh, uh, converting uh, land back to wetlands, all those sorts of things, because at the next election, or probably in the next 10 seconds, <laughs> an opposition leader or uh, maybe someone in the government will will set a step up and say, you know, actually those good, hard-working Kiwi families with their double-cabs ute don't want this new ute tax or whatever it is, and uh, it's pretty easy to uh, get rid of that sort of policy if you take that approach. Unless, and this is a fascinating thing with democracies, you have a crisis, and people can see up close and personal what climate change means, that maybe it's a good idea to to solve it, Even in the short term, it feels like it's a real thing right now, which has always been one of the issues with climate change policy is that you're trying to convince people sometimes to give up something now for an improvement in the future, or at least not a deterioration in the future, and to do it in a way together with a whole bunch of other people that you may not necessarily know will be in the same country as. So it's a really gnarly uh, public policy problem. But I just wanted to tempt you out of your realistic box in a way and say, just imagine we'd had the worst climate disaster in our history. Even the opposition is saying, yep, let's borrow some money to solve this issue. Let's get this right first time around. Let's not just rebuild the roads and the bridges and forget that there's a climate change thing. Uh, and even the opposition leader has um uh, put one of his back benches back in her box when she suggested that climate change was not uh, induced by humans. So let's have this thought experiment, David. Just imagine there's no financial constraints, because in reality, I actually think there aren't. Um, even with the current debt limits, we could do 60 billion. And there's not many political constraints that you know. even the uh, conservative parties, as we've seen, for example, in Britain at various points, um, are keen on Uh, climate change policy. got to remember, it was uh, Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan who just talked about climate change and doing something about it. But, so no political constraints, no financial constraints. What do you think a climate emergency policy set might look like?
0: Yeah, so, I mean, I, I agree with your diagnosis of the problem. And indeed, when I did my PhD way back when, it was precisely around that political psychology of climate change and the sorts of impediments um, that created, not just for, for citizens, but also for politicians having to make those um, bold decisions. And I agree that a crisis like we've seen can um, induce some shock therapy and make people more attentive and aware of those risks. However, there's also a structural dimension to why we um, haven't seen the sort of action that um, we need, um, you know, to... To meet the sorts of challenges that climate scientists have said, and the sorts of pathways we need for emissions reductions. And it's because we've got these incredibly elaborate systems, be they energy systems or transport systems or urban development systems, um, incredibly complex, incredibly difficult to change because they have their own lock-in mechanisms. And so Even if, um, you know, around Auckland today, um, Aucklanders are more attentive than ever to climate change as a risk and starting to think twice about driving their SUVs through the um, inner suburbs of of Ponsonby and cluttering up the roads there and burning, burning fossil fuels while they do so, even if they're having their second thoughts about that, it's still incredibly hard to get out of that system because it's embedded in and your work, um, your livelihood, your life is all reliant on that system being in place. And so it has its own lock in effects. So I think obviously if, if we're removing some of the political and financial constraints, um, and, and entertaining this thought experiment, I think a lot of the, the, the biggest levers here are those which are going to shift those systems. They're going to destabilize um, those systems. And, you know, just to focus on transport, for instance, because I already used that as an example, um, you know, we, we currently have an incredibly car-centric uh, transport system. And, you know, one of the simplest ways to destabilize that system is simply to provide alternatives, alternative transport means. I mean, even when you start to get that cognitive dissonance driving your car, it doesn't mean you've necessarily got options. And so I think, you know, I think most people understand this, that we need uh, more investment in um, public transport and we need that investment to be in electrified public transport. It should be uh, electric buses, um, the, the rail networks, should be electric, and in an ideal world, we might um, restore the sort of interregional, intercity inter-city uh, rail networks that um, we lost um, many decades ago but used to exist. Um, you know, it, it's an interesting point that we're not talking about doing anything new here. We're actually talking about restoring rail lines that, that did once um, service and provide those transport services throughout New Zealand.
1: So I'm curious about, um, you know, how you could pitch this in a positive way, because one of the complaints about climate policy is it always seems like, you know, these these are the fun police telling me that I can't do this thing or this thing that I really enjoy doing or love having, I'm going to have to give up. Is there another way that particularly some of these transport changes can be pitched or explained so that those people who... On the face of it, maybe giving up—you know—the chance to get a cheap double cab ute or to drive on a motorway can see the benefits for themselves, even in the short term, uh, from some sort of change. A good example, perhaps, is—you know—if you manage to get a whole bunch of people uh, cycling and walking and scootering to work instead of driving by themselves in a single car. You know the um, the motorways and the roads would be freer for those people who have no choice. Well,
0: I think that's right. There's there's a number of different um, co-benefits here, and I and I think actually freedom of choice is potentially one of the big values here to to forefront, um, because obviously one of the attractions of private vehicles and our cultural attachment to, you know, the Holden and the um <laughs> you, you know, the V eights and, and all the rest of it is, is that sense of freedom that the car gives you. You know, there's a whole culture of driving to the beach and enjoying a sunset from, from the car parked up. Um, but, you know, if if we diversify our transport systems, that's also consistent with freedom of choice, that we do have other options and you know obviously the electrification of private transport is the is the complement to um to the electrification of public transport but you know evs are certainly going to play a role and they're going to be cheaper to run over the long term you know already the technology is such that if you do a life cycle assessment um, you know many evs are cheaper to run over the long run and i don't think many people realize this but it's a much simpler engine system. Um, You know, it doesn't have all of the complexities of an internal combustion engine. And so the need, the costs of maintenance and so on are incredibly cheap for EVs because it's really just a battery and a drive shaft. So you save money on the energy, but you also save money on maintenance costs over the long run. So there's a cost element here. Um, there's the freedom of choice element. And, you know, I, th- I think there's, as you as you mentioned, there's the avoiding things like congestion, improving um, health. I mean, I cycle everywhere around Tamaki Makoto, um, around Auckland, and I get there quicker than most people. You know, fortunately, this only works for some people. Um, you know, I do live in, the, in a suburb, so that makes it a little simpler.
1: I'm curious about how... Um, the financial incentives could be structured to achieve this. There's the economist in me that says, ah, all we need is a price, all we need is a market, and we could solve this. And that's, in essence, what the idea of the Emissions Trading Scheme has been, and it's been imperfect, to say the least, mm-hmm. in, in New Zealand, and you could argue all around the world. But are there some financial tools that could be used to get over these fundamental problems that our brains have. For example, you know, the high upfront capital cost of a vehicle when we know, I mean, we're told that the long-term cost of the vehicle is actually lower because the cost of the fuel is lower. Mm -hmm. But often you need incentives to get over these um, chicken and egg problems and also some of these problems that human brains have in understanding risk and assessing costs and benefits over the long run?
0: Yeah, I mean, if, if we're entertaining our thought experiment, then of course we just subsidise the hell out of everything and um, throw a whole lot of public money at um, electrified forms of transport to make it super cheap. You could have e-bike subsidies and EV subsidies. You know, obviously we already do have a subsidy through the um, fee baits the, uh which you know imposes a levy on high-emitting vehicles and and discounts that on the um on the low emissions vehicles. So, so there's definitely is uh, subsidies as one way of doing that. But if if we step back into the real world a little more, we can't expect, I think, government to completely subsidize people's private purchases. Um and you know, even um, things like the clean car discount, that fee-bank mechanism. it it does have um, distributional implications because it's really only available to people who are purchasing those cars new. And so, you know, while that will benefit other people over the long run as some of those EVs start to to enter the um, second-hand market, it doesn't really help lower-income households um, with their freedom of choice and their freedom to avoid emissions pricing and fuel taxing, which is which is making um, that fossil fuel-driven transport um, more expensive over time. So, you know, you might be more targeted and, and certainly there's schemes overseas like um, EV and e-bike share schemes where uh, local or central governments um, fund share schemes uh, for particular communities and, you know, organisations like Kainga Order. Might um, pursue those sorts of uh, schemes for their communities, um, so so there could be more targeted support that helps address some of those distributional concerns. But I think there's also a question here about policy mixes, and I think um, you know, emissions pricing uh, is is the one of the mechanisms that New Zealand government has focused on, and, and quite. Single-mindedly, um, until recently, the emissions trading scheme, which generates um, a price on emissions, and on, New Zealand has been described by the New Zealand government as the primary policy instrument for achieving its emissions reductions targets. But
1: does it actually work? Though, can we tell how much, um, how many emissions have been reduced because of it? It
0: could work, but all of the existing analysis suggests that prices would need to be significantly higher, uh, well above $200 a tonne in order to induce the sorts of behavioural changes that would be consistent with the kinds of goals that we're trying to achieve for 2030 and 2050 and so on. And, of course, if you pump up the price um, that high, we go very much into the realm of political reality again because you get a huge backlash from uh, voters. It'd be very hard for a democratically elected politician to sustain that. And also because we have an all-sectors emissions trading scheme, which is quite unusual. All sectors except agriculture, but, um, <laughs> but, but you know, very wide coverage in that sense. Um, you know, different sectors are sensitive in different ways to the prices. They have differing levels of sensitivity to emissions pricing. And as we've discovered through our own experiment with the emissions trading scheme, uh, land use change is highly sensitive to to an emissions price. And we've seen um, large-scale registration of forests into the emissions trading scheme and a lot of investment into um, permanent Forests and some strong incentives for commercial forests as well. Um, So, you know, pushing up the price even further, it, it creates all sorts of political tensions which are difficult for governments to manage. And so a more pragmatic approach and a more effective approach is to take a policy mix approach. And this is certainly the recommendation of the IPCC in its recent report, on climate mitigation, it says that you know both theoretical and empirical analysis has shown that a combination of instruments chosen to create positive synergies between them um, is the best approach. And so, there's a group uh, which um, look, looking into this uh, the economics of innovation and sustainability transitions consortium uh, based in the UK, and they've done some great simulation modeling and this. And they find that of all the different instruments which are available, um, it's actually EV mandates which are the most effective. So mandating uh, the producers of vehicles to produce a certain proportion as electric vehicles. But the best of all worlds, the best possible outcomes from their modelling is combining that with emissions pricing and also with efficiency standards. So it's having that Combination which is um, most likely to create a social tipping point for EVs, where suddenly um, the conditions are so favorable that you get this self reinforcing feedback loop, and suddenly everyone's buying into EVs. Um, You know, obviously, an EV mandate would play out differently in New Zealand because we don't produce the vehicles, we import them, but you could imagine applying that as a mandate for importation of vehicles that the importers have to import a particular percentage of, um, EVs as, as part of the, um, as part of the work. And I think, you, you know, the, the merits of this is that it creates predictability. And so it enables more, um, stability for creating charging infrastructure and so on, because, um, you know, the investors in that charging infrastructure will know that there is a certain volume of EVs and they can make better uh, investment decisions because there's a bit more predictability there.
1: When the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's KiwiBank's Chief Economist, Jared Kerr, on what's happening with inflation in 2024.
0: Globally, inflation rose to really high levels. We saw inflation averaging over 10% uh, last year. Now central banks have reacted. They've tightened monetary policy. They've lifted interest rates to levels where it hurts. We've seen growth slow down and we've seen inflation coming off, which is great news because we import a lot of inflation from the rest of the world and that imported inflation is easing. So half the job that we're trying to do locally is, is being done for us offshore. The other half, the domestic bit, well, that's the tough bit. That's the sticky inflation that's coming out of a housing market, it's coming out of construction, it's coming out of service industries and it's going to be hard to contain.
1: Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Jared and other Kiwibank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses.
0: Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tāmaki Makaurau, Jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment?
1: That whole idea of, you know, of collection of policies together, which may actually cost a bit of money, but which are pitched as a, a, a benefit for everyone, uh, really takes us back to the Inflation Reduction Act of last year from the Joe Biden government, which, from my point of view, is the most inaccurately Named uh, Act designed to do something completely different, but is just plain genius because of it. Um, it re- originally started off as a collection of sort of Green New Deal policies that were pretty immediately rejected by Republicans. But then Joe Biden came back and, with the help of a bunch of people, renamed it as the Inflation Reduction Act, used the quite um, tactical approach of saying, hey, we've got an inflation problem, and guess what? Um, Electric vehicles are cheaper to run, and so are electric heat pumps, and it'd be quite nice to not have to rely on Russian or Saudi oil, so let's just put up a bunch of windmills and solar panels and um, wean ourselves off all of that fossil fuel. And suddenly, what appeared to be, you know, um, you're not going to pry... My uh, F 150 out of my cold, dead hands, along with the gun rack, um, became, oh, wow, there's an electric F 150. I'll have that. Thank you very much. So I wonder if that Inflation Reduction Act, which is a third of a trillion dollars worth of uh, subsidies, and which now the European Union is going, ah, we're previously all about um, no government helping any com- company. Uh, or using subsidies to boost our economy is actually going, actually, we can't afford to ignore this. We better come up with our own subsidies. And before you know it, you've got the world's two biggest economies effectively subsidizing massive shifts into electrification and applying, you know, government subsidies to try and deal with this. Is there a risk here that, you know, post-Gabriel, maybe 12 months or so when we're back to policy as normal – we miss an opportunity, or uh, we also uh, don't respond to um, a threat that we get sort of carved out of this new world where others are subsidising and we don't.
0: Yeah, I would love to see um, the New Zealand government change its framing around the issue, and I think the Inflation Reduction Act is a is a brilliant example of that you know for, for years and decades they've been struggling with an emissions price to install a carbon tax or emission trading scheme um and coming up against those politics and finding it impossible and so in, in a sense there was a, a form of um, idealism and political naivety from the economists who were proposing that as the pathway forward because all it did was delay and um you know, exclude other kinds of approaches to this. And so instead they've pivoted to essentially a subsidies first policy approach. They've got a number of targeted uh, tax credits for all sorts of, um, all sorts of outcomes throughout renewable energy and so on. And also in other spaces like nature-based solutions, which I mentioned earlier. Um, And, you know, this comes a bit back to my, um, my doctoral thesis in the political psychology way back when, that, you know, I was always frustrated that um, the language and the framing of climate change um, was, was often driven by environmentalist movements and conveyed the values that mattered for environmentalist movements. But, you know, to make change in politics, you really need to persuade those people who are sitting on the fence first and foremost the persuadable, um, you know, middle ground, who's, who's got mixed feelings or or uncertainty about the issue, or, or you need to, um, you know, also target the values of people on the other side, people who are opposing this. And the Inflation Reduction Act was was a framing that was directed precisely to Joe Manchin, who was the um, linchpin, really, who was who was had a huge amount of power over, over yes or no. Um, and, you know, it, it was it was brilliant political strategy because it enabled him to sell it to his constituencies. Um, and it is also accurate. I mean, there is new modelling done now, um, especially some work that came out last year by Dwayne Farmer and some of his colleagues from the University of Oxford, which shows that... Past modeling of the transition has completely neglected the learning curves that new technology, especially mass-produced technology like solar PV and wind uh, turbines and so on. The way that the more you deploy that in the real world, um, the more the costs come down and the cheaper and cheaper it gets. And his argument when you put that back into economic modelling is that we save globally trillions and trillions of dollars um, into the future because we are weaning ourselves off ever more expensive fossil fuels and substituting into ever cheaper renewable energy. Um, You know, those experience curves and those cost reductions won't go on forever, um, but... Because a lot of these technologies are only on the start of that learning curve, um, there's all sorts of domains where cost reductions are going to be enormous if only we make those investments in order to um, promote those technologies and, and to enable them to get a foothold into, into markets so that they can um, you know, eventually become cost competitive and, and function in the market well. And so to come back to your original point around what the New Zealand government might be doing more of than it's exactly that. I mean, when we, when we deploy wind and solar in New Zealand, we're contributing to those global learning curves we're contributing to those cost reductions because we're deploying it in different contexts and that information and those learnings are going back overseas and learning how to make this stuff ever more efficient and effective and resilient. And so I mean, this is just one of many arguments why that whole, you know, oh, we're only 0.17 of global emissions, blah, 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 you know, we shouldn't be investing in this is is just absolute nonsense because by participating in the energy transition sooner, we're contributing to those learning curves, we're contributing to driving the cost down and we're making energy cheaper for all New Zealanders henceforth.
1: So let's imagine that um, we were proposing an Inflation Reduction Act for Aotearoa ahead of the election in which we reframed a lot of these policies as inflation reduction policies um, to reduce the costs of transport, of energy, and to basically, in not just the long run, but in the short short run, make life cheaper, healthier, and uh, and easier, uh, what sort of policies could you bring in if you were going to pitch it like that? I can think of a few, I'll throw them at you just to see, see what you think. <laughs> so for example, um, the idea of uh, subsidizing electric vehicles and um, using a good whack of actual uh, fiscal resource to do it, not just have a fiscally neutral approach like we have now. Um, to really encourage perhaps those people who are sitting on the fence, maybe the double cab ute drivers who'd love to have a a really fast electric double cab ute, bring them on board. Um, Secondly, the um, half price public transport showed that a government could do something quite innovative with public transport costs uh, to show people that um, you have a lot more people using the network and uh, suddenly the costs start falling, particularly if you invest quite heavily up front in electric buses and increasing the fleets of your buses so that you get more reliability and frequency. And then you do things, for example, around solar, where we haven't really applied many or any subsidies to get solar rolled out, particularly from a uh, microgrid resilience point of view. Just imagine if all of those Uh, mobile cell sites and um, small towns um, had been powered by solar and a few batteries here and there. Or just imagine if these towns had a few batteries and um, solar panels on all their roofs to supply their neighbours up the road um, and not have to worry about one substation and Napier being taken out and cutting off the power to an entire half of the island. Um, So uh, there's a few things. Um, Starters for 10?
0: I I think absolutely tax tax credits could be a different way of delivering subsidies in transport, and um, we've already talked about that, and I was thinking of other examples. I think, um, you know, biofuels is another space. Um, We've just seen the government withdraw its biofuel mandate, which I think is... um, a pity because i think we need innovation in all spaces and i think um you know while there were concerns about um the trade-offs for land use in regards to biofuels if um you know woody biomass is being grown uh, purely for biofuel purpose we're missing here that you know the waste to value opportunities are another um opportunity for biofuels and by um uh, by removing that mandate, we're potentially missing out on the innovation opportunities there, and so.
1: Just imagine if that slash had been used to make yeah. biofuel instead of take out a few bridges.
0: Exactly. Um, so certainly, tax credits could be another way to support that, and I think um, tax credits can be used in in a broader sense for all sorts of innovation because you know one of the problems in New Zealand is that. New technologies getting along the innovation pathway. Um, we have a real problem where we forget the D that comes after R and D, research, development, and deployment. Um, deployment is absolutely fundamental, and you know we already have a problem with R and D. It's not as high as many other countries. It's about one point. of GDP um, here, and that's about half of the OECD average and well below some of those countries that are really pushing into innovation, like Finland and Denmark at about 3%, and Israel up over 5%. So so we could do more in the R&D space, but deployment is critical, getting um, those technologies out in the field and starting to trigger those learning curves that I was talking about earlier where we learn more about how to scale up these technologies um, by getting them out in the real world. So certainly, tax credits can be um, can can be useful for encouraging all of this as as kind of market pull policies, as we call them. And again, these are these these are sort of part of that policy mix of having all the levers. But I will just add, you know, you know, all of this um, depends on the governments relinquishing its previous commitment to technology-neutral approaches in policy. I think it really begs this question um, as to, you know, to what extent government is willing to stand behind particular technologies and push um, into those as strategic opportunities um, for New Zealand to solve its own problems, but also to contribute to solutions that p- can be scaled Globally, and that's the kind of mindset which the US and other countries are increasingly going into, rather than thinking about climate change as a as a cost-sharing exercise and worrying about free riding. They're increasingly understanding it as a global competition to um, you know transform the uh, industries to be leaders in the green industrial revolution and to provide the sorts of solutions that will um, ensure economic growth in the decades ahead. And so I, th- I think I'd l- it would be great if New Zealand was a little bit more strategic about precisely those sorts of opportunities. And, um, you know, some of the, th- th- there was a report in this um, commission by Callaghan Innovation a little while ago, and it identified agritech as an obvious uh, focal point for that kind of investment and certainly um, you know we've had a lot of r&d over the years but arguably again not enough deployment of those technologies into the field uh, and another is geothermal we've got um some of the world's greatest experts in geothermal energy uh and we don't do enough of that and meanwhile many countries are running off exploring opportunities in enhanced geothermal systems, um, which use some of the learnings from fracking to um, enhance existing geothermal reservoirs and to create on-demand energy that can be uh, switched on and off in order to meet uh, peak demand. And that's obviously a great opportunity for replacing something like Huntley Um, you know, which is still the big black stain on our um, baseline energy, electricity source generation. Those sorts of opportunities need to be explored, but they do require strategic decisions from government.
1: David Hall, uh, who is the Climate Policy Director at Toha. David, thank you very much for being on When the Facts Change. Thank you. When the Facts Change was brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network, together with KiwiBank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how KiwiBank are making Kiwi better off.
0: Kia ora e tewi. te butler here, Podcast Manager at The Spin-Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spin-Off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate.